Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky to be joined today by George Beattie of Beasley. Uh, good morning, George. How are you? Very well, thanks, Alex. Good to see you. Good. It's, it's actually nice to say good morning. And one, it is still morning. Um, usually I'm just saying it for the, the audio. And then secondly, we're sharing the same time zone because you are joining us from London. <laughs> exactly. Um, but George... Everyone knows Beasley, I would think, that listens to this. Maybe not. And maybe some of the tech people joining might not. But um, it'd be great to kind of, you've got a really interesting role. So it'd be great to kind of at least kind of start our conversation about your role. And, and then we'll dig into kind of what that means uh, further in the conversation. Sure. Well, look, just quickly, um, Beasley is a, a leading commercial specialty um, insurer and one of the biggest or the biggest insurer in Lloyd's um, of London. Uh, my role is kind of unique. Um, so I lead the incubation underwriting team at Beasley. You're not going to find many other teams with that kind of labeling. Maybe you will in the future if we're successful, you know, who knows. Um, our job is basically to discover, develop, launch and underwrite brand new insurance propositions. So these are generally things that you would see as um, breakthrough innovations, as opposed to incremental or adjacent adaptation of existing products into new industries, for example. Um, we have a separate product development team that does that last part um, really well, which is great because it means we get to spend all of our time with our heads in the clouds, basically thinking about what should insurance products look like, whom should they serve, how should they operate, what kind of services and technologies should they incorporate. These types of really gnarly, basically bottom of drawer issues for a lot of insurers, a lot of people in the space um, uh, that we kind of get to and, and try and rationalize and understand. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that's, um, that's really super useful because, you know, what I want to sort of talk about today is, is, is that multitude of kind of innovation, what innovation looks like. Um, we've had a lovely time on the podcast, generally being quite um, disparaging about innovation within kind of some of the larger organizations, um, uh, probably unfairly because we haven't had any representation, but I kind of want to talk about what in effective innovation looks like. And I think that's, that's realistically the, the terminology I want to use is um, innovating for innovating's sake is, 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 is worthless. So I suppose jumping around a little bit, I, I wanted to kind of understand, you know, something you said to me beforehand, um, you said sort of innovation labs are sort of often seen as a tax. Um, so I kind of wanted to dig into what you, what you think that means and, and, you know, how do you get it right? What, how, does it, how does it work in the best way? Sure. So, so look, I mean, first thing is to say, let's just lump innovation teams into one basket, right? Whether it's a lab or it's an incubator or it's some other thing, let's just yes. call it what it is, incubation teams. Um, incubation teams have often struggled in insurance to show value. And I think that the main issue with that has been that if you look at innovation insurance, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm. You've got technology in the context of data and analytics and AI. You've got products, which might not include any of those things. You've got culture, you've got social change, 
you know, all of these aspects together make innovation. And I think that where teams are just labeled as innovation across the whole piece, it's really hard to know what to concentrate on because innovating products is, in, is incredibly different to trying to work out whether you need a new tech system to mm. rationalize your data, to, to put a data lake together and to understand a certain type of problem. So too many channels of effort with too few people normally means that teams struggle to say, well, here's what we've achieved. Here's what our kind of value dynamic um, is. The other thing is that where this happens to teams, it's often because they lack the authority to make their work happen. Mm-hmm. So they invariably have to go to other parts of their organizations to say, look, can we have a person to do this? Can we have capacity to do another thing? Um, can we have some budget to, to pay to, to research a, a topic? And so very quickly, that's where these teams become attacks, where people start to dread the call because it's going to take time out of their working day and it's going to cost them something and it all gets a bit ugly. And so what happens a lot is these teams get rolled up or they keep going for a long time and morale is, is, really, is really poor. So there are a few things we can do about it. You know, bear in mind that at Beasley, we've been together as a team since last September. So we're just coming up on our first full year. So we're still learning. I'm not going to you know, preach at people and say we've got it exactly right. But I think we have taken a refreshed perspective on it, which is to really treat our value statement as being comprised of three things. The first one is um, future um, profitability. Okay. Now, the statement around that, the phrasing is intentional because we're not here to target rapid um, early top line growth in premium because um, we need to have a quality standard that's high enough to try and make sure that what we do is consistent and actually will contribute to the business later on. So future profitability is the first thing. The second thing is um, uh, situational awareness. So whether or not we get into a space, we need to make sure that Beasley has the most sophisticated house view possible so that our executives, others, everybody at Beasley has at least a really good opinion when they're taken to task over why we're not in a space or what we're doing with regards to a certain thing. And then the third piece is kind of brand and culture. So we go out there <clears throat> and we walk the walk and we talk the talk um, in order to make sure that people see Beasley as a, as a innovative brand. Um, and that's not just sort of paying lip service to it. It's important for our stakeholders, whether they're shareholders, employees, or our counterparties in the market, but it's also about talent you know, mm-hmm. to get the kind of talent in to do new stuff, we need to be seen as an attractive um, place to be. So we need to be able to be seen that we're, we're thinking kind of um, differently. Yeah. So I'll stop talking in a second, but if I was to kind of take a step back and say to the market, how do you get out of this kind of innovation trap, if you like, of this kind of death loop where it gets really hard to show value, there, there are some, some major things that can be done. The mm. first one would be to deconstruct innovation into the different channels of activity that make sense to your business. So, you know, we're talking about these different pots at Beasley. So I look after the breakthrough products pot, which means we don't have to concentrate on any other other stuff that might be defined as innovation. We have a separate team that does product development. So that's the incremental adaptation uh, pot, which is a big part of innovation, really important part of innovation. And then you've got the cultural social bits that are owned by other pieces of the company. Now, what this means is we can concentrate on exactly what our role is. And we don't get that kind of fog, if you like, that fog of like innovation war where we don't know where we're turning to next. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing is you've got to incentivize your, innov- your innovators differently to your general employees. right? And, and mainly that's around this, you know, generally in underwriting teams, it's about some aspect of consistent growth, but there is a lot 
lot more of a concentration on top line and, and really rationalizing that as the kind of profit engine for the company. Innovators shouldn't be tasked like that because you quickly get into a trap of getting them to write top line revenue and it can be very lumpy to start with. And so you're really kind of escalating the risk of that kind of activity if you do it in that way. Um, the third thing is give your innovators authority to fail quickly and recognize that failure is part of success. It's required to succeed, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a very different way of thinking again. Um, and then look, the last thing I mentioned is just, you've got to give innovation people a line into the top management of the company. Although these are very time poor people, if we are going to execute on the fact we all say innovation is really important, you've got to give these people airtime to talk to the decision makers in the company so they can make decisions themselves quickly. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it all becomes just a loop where you're just waiting to hear back from people. Mm -hmm. And like oxygen, like a lack of oxygen, these teams just wither um, on the vine. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that was a lot of words, but does that make sense? No, there were a lot of good words well put together, um, but uh, there, there was so much to unpick there. I mean, I think one thing that's been a bit of a thing that we sort of came towards the end of, there was just about the kind of line into the top and I, I think that's something that we I think there's a there's a cultural thing particularly in the UK but I think in larger businesses where there's a sort of there's a load of lines of things that we know are important to the business which don't get enough of a feed into the top line now so if we think of kind of you know, because innovation, another way of looking at innovation is R&D, right? R&D is baked into the culture of a pharmaceutical company. You know, they have a massive budget for that. Um, technology companies have big budgets for R&D. It's baked into the kind of nature. It might even be baked into the working week. You know, a Google or a Facebook might give you a day a week where you just look and work on your own stuff. And we just haven't baked that into the insurance industry because it's kind of full of, you know, and maybe it's a little bit of focusing too much on the past. You know, it's very important to recognize that it's a 300 year old industry and it has all these kind of traditions and, and, and all of that's charming and important. Um, but there's a little bit of kind of, therefore we've done it this way forever. That's the way it's going to be done. That's kind of baked into the DNA. So I do, I do wonder if we can have a generational shift where the top leadership, um, whether they don't want to know, really. Um, and I think where it's done badly is where it's kind of being done because people feel they need to be having an innovation lab or an innovation team. Um, yes. And it doesn't have that top line in. In the same way that from my perspective, um, I do an awful lot with um, companies talking about their DE&I um, issues and responsibilities. I see an awful lot less top line involvement in that process and unless that does happen that's not going to be addressed either because these are kind of fundamental shifts in in the dna of a business um, yeah um i think i just made a statement there rather than ask the question no so. no no it's good i mean look it's somewhat rhetorical but I, like i agree with you right so so i think insurance has got a problem in general because it's been done for so long you say it's a 300 year old industry look you know, frankly um it's a lot older than that some yeah. thousand few thousand years bc in ancient sumeria you could get bottom recontracts for your vessels um going to different parts of the world right if they sank well, you get a payment. I, did, I did not know that there we go yeah. so <laughs> so insurance right comes from this cradle of civilization so currency came out of um ancient uh, sumeria 
and mm. Kaduru was like a wooden duck and it represented value. That's the first currency that we have in the world. And insurance came from there as well. And so mm. it's like the oldest industry, financial industry out there, you know, very closely associated with banking and, and that kind of statement of value. And so we have this kind of clash, right, between conservative values around consistent underwriting and the need to, to adapt to a changing world. Mm -hmm. We know that we're catering for less and less risk that the average company faces. 80% of the average company value today is based in intangible assets. And you look at the available insurance products and it's all about tangible stuff. Mm. It's about property, it's about machinery, it's about people. And that's all great because all of that is still valuable, but we're very quickly losing sight of what is actually driving the risk dynamic for companies. And where we've been able to plod along for the last few decades um, I think we're going to see a really ac acute drop off of relevance if we don't start to get that right pretty quickly. We do not have time to sleepwalk into this as a crisis, as an industry, because we're going to find our, our relevance it wanes to, to the point where actually our share of risk wallet, if you like, has diminished to such a point that people no longer talk about insurance when yeah. it comes to mitigating risk or dealing with risk. Mm. It'll become about other types of structures. So we are in a a broader existential struggle for continued relevance, which I don't think people really understand. And the other thing I, I think is particularly relevant to insurance is this concept that um, age in some way represents capability. Yeah. So the thing I always talk about is age is no more a, um, a guarantee of capability than youth is a guarantee of innovation. Yes. Right. It takes all sorts of people of different sizes, orientations and everything else to do jobs successfully, including innovation. And I don't think this industry gets that right. If you look at other industries, you get a range of people. doesn't matter what age they are. It's about their aptitude and their capability. You could mm. be a 25 year old MD in banking if you're good enough. Yeah. I'd love to see some more of that type of thinking in insurance where it's about your aptitude and capability rather than any of the other factors that we define as being overly, frankly, overly important. It's not mm. to say that numbers of years in the job can't equal experience. And that's really vital because of course it is right. There's a reason that, that people have been around for a long time. They've seen a lot of stuff and that's really vital, mm. but we shouldn't just forget about innate quality of certain people to understand issues, whether mm. it's EQ or IQ, just to kind of get across things. If we could get better at that, I think we'd see a bit more, entrepreneurialism in the industry mm -hmm. and maybe a bit more acceptance of of just widening that kind of bubble of of addressable risk so we can we can maintain that relevance heading into the future mm. you, you just there's so much i want to get into there because that's that's really kind of screaming from the hymn sheet of the stuff that i'm interested in because you know obviously you have a wider look of the world when you when you work in my role because my role is to sit across different businesses and, and i and i sit across traditional insurance businesses that are trying to innovate and I work with technology businesses that are completely new um, as talent to the industry but they're just they're building what they see as a tech solution and they're a tech business that just happen to service the insurance industry and I had a brilliant conversation with someone the other day and it was an insure tech that offers a, a parametric cover for um, a gap in the insurance offering of the traditional insurance market and what they were saying, which was great, actually, they said, I'm so bored of hearing this insurance is broken. And essentially, having heard what you've just said, it really kind of put those two conversations together. Insurance is not broken at delivering what it's always been around to deliver for, which is ensuring physical risk is particularly good at, you know, the, the traditional lines of business. The, the challenge is the, the business world, as we know, it, is changing very, very dramatically. 
Um, there's much more intangible risk. And we've just not adapted or set up to deal with that risk. And the challenge there is then you're saying that the experts on that risk are not currently in the insurance industry. And we're yeah. not doing enough to bring them in. That doesn't mean the insurance industry can't tackle those risks. It just means we can't tackle them with the existing kind of uh, talent base because they're not the people for it. If you're, if you're talking about the kind of more, you know, things like internet downtime, you need to have a deep tech understanding of kind of servers and the kind of like the global infrastructure of the internet, for example, um, that is completely different to kind of like cyber risk as we offer it. And it's completely different to kind of the types of lines of business we offer. And then kind of what you would, what are you indemnifying something for? You know, if you've got a Shopify store and you, what does your business interruption cover look like? in that yeah. instance um so and, I, and there's a million and one examples that we could give but the, the, the sort of talent into the industry isn't there um for those yeah. new emerging risks and look I, I agree with you but but one one point of challenge would be um we don't know what our current talent pool can do because we don't allow them to do anything other than the silos that we provide them with right so insurance you get funneled into geography product all the time because we love specialists yeah. but because to your point those specialist areas are aligned with products we've always done um we, we have no lateral movement right people mm -hmm. are literally disincentivized from looking at anything other than what they've been told to look at so mm -hmm. we can't blame people for not innovating if they're not given any breathing space to think about things differently and mm -hmm. so i think it's about building coalitions you look at something really new like system downtime okay yes um as a coalition, you need to have the ability to understand that issue better than, than any part of this on its own. However, it's not necessarily the case that the insurance industry has to have the, the world expert on cloud computing in the insurance industry working for an insurer. My view would be very much more that you just bring these different aspects together on a partnership basis. So, you know, one of the things we, we, we I think, do quite well or have done well so far is to acknowledge our shortcomings and to almost like a kind of hub and spoke model, treat a product um, around a pain issue as, as a kind of hub for getting best in class attributes in one place. So, okay, maybe the insurance piece comes from us. We, we provide the capacity to pay for the issue when it occurs, but you bring in those other services from third parties and you allow them to wear their brand within that vehicle. So it doesn't all have to be labeled as Beasley. It doesn't cheapen mm -hmm. our brand if we have the best AI offering for a certain issue alongside us, actually, it makes us look more mature. It makes us look better connected and more relevant. So I completely get your point around, you know, that difficulty of getting talent in, but maybe the other way of looking at it is just how do we get talent from other industries to work with us more effectively hmm. um, as a, not a shortcut, but as an alternative route to assuming like a giant spider, we have to absorb everyone into our kind of, into our marketplace. Hmm. Yeah, I think this, I think it's a really important point to, to make. And if you think of, if you look at the kind of tech world, tech world is completely full of partnership, and, in, and innovation comes in partnership all the time. Um, and and it's just, I suppose, it speaks to the traditional structure of building the biggest kind of monolithic structure. It represents kind of the tech structures and tech stacks we're used to seeing in kind of um, incumbent insurers as well. That that tech stack is changing, and everything has to be open API, everything has to connect and talk to each other. And, and we need to do that on a business format as well. You know, we need to operate like that as, as kind of individuals to drive innovation. Um, because, you know, the coalition point as well is that if the industry doesn't change, then 
that's where the existential threat comes from. You know, sort of operating as a silo, um, one business trying to do it on their own is 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 it's too big a challenge. Tackle. Yeah, yeah, and and imagine it like a imagine it like a supermarket. Supermarkets in the 1930s contained certain products that people wanted to buy at that time. Supermarkets now contain a lot more products. Yes. Imagine if supermarkets hadn't updated what they had in their shelves between then and now. Okay, it's an arbitrary time boundary, but you get my point. Yeah. People want, have different needs and requirements now. And so the shelves are completely different to what they would have been 80, 90, 100 years ago, 500 years ago. So if insurance is a supermarket, our shelves, the products on our shelves have not changed for, for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. It's not good in any industry, in any business. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the stuff that might, maybe keep this analogy going, some of the stuff that we want to put on those shelves might not be um, feasible for the market to take on, right? It might be too systemic. That's usually the place that, that emerging risks go to. But there's an awful lot out there that just with a bit of rationalization, a bit of effort and a bit of venture spirit, we could speak to much more effectively. Um, mm-hmm. And look, it might sound like I'm bashing the market and everything else. <clears throat> I do think like we are making a lot of progress on this. You know, there are a lot more teams popping up that have this kind of um, perspective. And I think that's really good. And I think clients are responding well to that as well. Mm. Yeah, and exactly. Uh, it's certainly not kind of looking to bash the market. I mean, we, we, we both work in it. So uh... <laughs> That would be counterproductive to a certain extent. Um, you know, particularly for me, I think servicing it <laughs> that would make me very unpopular. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to talk about talent because we, we both shared experiences of coming in um, as graduates to the insurance industry, I, I believe, and, and, and also shared, shared experiences of trying to get out. Um, uh, I successfully did it, I would point out. Um, so yes. um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how well that's panned out, but... You know, I want to I want to sort of talk about go, going all the way back, and, and I know obviously there's some distance between us, so we're probably better at it than we were now. But do we do a good enough job at attracting and retaining new talent? So, like, particularly new, fresh people into the industry? Do you think? Um, and, and presumably, if not, what do you think we can we can do about that? Yeah. So, firstly, I think insurance does a poor but improving job of retaining talent right and it's not because of the teams that are doing this stuff because they've got an almighty job on their hands right it is hard because Mm -hmm. all of the stuff we've been saying about culture and outlook makes it a very difficult environment to construct a fair marketing prospectus for people which is what are you going to do when you come here like we talk Mm -hmm. about all this emerging tech and new risks and everything else but if the reality of doing these jobs doesn't stack up to that really exciting dynamic pitch then people get disenfranchised very quickly and leave so when i think about my grad cohort from 2011 something like four out of 30 of us remain in the industry Mm. just if you actually think about that that is really really bad news yeah really bad news so you've got 30 of the best and brightest who are coming in and they could have done law, they could have done banking, they could have done tech, they could have done NGO, whatever it is. They've come here because they've bought that message mm-hmm. and they leave. So all of that investment, all of that potential has gone out the door. We've got this kind of instant brain drain. If our turnover is that high, and I don't think that's um, specific to the company I was at, I think it's probably common across the industry. Mm. You, you, we're, just, you know, we're just building a foundation on very, very shaky ground. You know, We need the retention of those kinds of people to be, to be higher. So... Look, a main issue as I see it is 
insurance companies and brokers are quite good at selling the dream you know come and work at the forefront of risk we touch everything insurance is in the middle of everything and it's not just call centers it's actually kidnap and ransom and it's climate change and it's intangible assets all this kind of good stuff um but the hard reality when they get into that job is they're probably going to be operating in a silo Mm -hmm. and the kind of work they're going to be doing is often necessarily less glamorous than what they're expecting and that's okay because junior people have to do some work that they think of as beneath them but they have to do it to understand technical systems or to to just be a fly in the wall and understand how conversations work all of that is fine it's just how long that lasts for i think can be significantly painful to high caliber high iq eq people because they want to be given responsibility and there's not much often i think there's a perception there's not much flexibility if you're really good it doesn't matter because the way this works is you have to put your bum on a seat for two years, do the photocopying, stand in a queue for the senior broker in Lloyd's, wherever you are. And that's just, that's just how it works. Great. Mm-hmm. You're really bright, but no, you have to play by the rules and mm-hmm. people just buck against that and, and, and tend to tend to leave. So look, you could call that a misallocation of resources if you're being really corporate about it. But I think it's just wrong at the personal end, right? We should be leaning into people's capability and stretching them. And if you can't do that for your graduate cohort, your new talent cohort, reduce the cohort size. Yeah. Okay. Put people into a situation where they're with a team that can stretch them, that can make their lives interesting, or you're going to lose them and it's a completely wasted investment. In fact, it might even be a negative investment because it's going to hurt your brand and reputation in the long run. And mm-hmm. so it's almost, it's almost worse getting into it than, than, than not frankly, if you're not going to, if you're not going to kind of do it properly. So other thing to mention is that talents, it's not just about early careers, right? There's some evidence that the industry is attracting people from outside of insurance into the market. So you look at the importance of technology in terms of, um, you know, data and analytics and AI and just digitizing insurance. There's a lot more space now for people that think differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am seeing evidence, right, of people with a very different outlook to the to that that we've seen before. You know, we work with people in Beasley all the time that have really different backgrounds and have done different things, and that's really refreshing to me because mm-hmm. those I know it's a an old adage, but those different perspectives on an issue really do unlock things much faster than just if you have everyone with the same experience with the same kind of thought process and dynamic. Mm-hmm. You end you end up getting stuck in this kind of echo chamber mm-hmm. or, and that, that quickly turns into this kind of dialogue of the deaf, right? Where everyone's like vehemently agreeing with each other, but, <laughs> but no one's challenging each other. So it becomes kind of like dialogue of the deaf mashed with hippo, right? Highest paid person's opinion yeah. and, and you don't get anywhere. And again, that's one of the big traps, I guess, with innovation as well. Yeah. I, this, yeah. I mean, my, my story was, was, was similar, but you know, joking aside, but about leaving but that's that's why i left you know i remember being the sort of having having the conversation six months in and saying i, I want to do this job and and they say well we can see you doing that in three years time and and to a graduate three years is you know you that's your entire degree so you think well i'm not going to wait that long to get there and, and and what are the challenges along the way or or and i think i think we do need to be braver and it comes back to that culture of if people are good enough you know give them the opportunities and and you the thing is you do see it in pockets you know you see it in pockets you see these kind of wunderkind walking around the uh, the market that have been sort of anointed and um and that's always really positive because it's people that have been sort of businesses that have been brave enough to kind of say look they're good enough so we're going to make them yeah prominent um there just needs to be a bit more of that and i do think that's a bit of a solution is kind of working with you know work work, work with a smaller squad you know uh, 
there's actually what's happened in football. Um, yes. Not wanting to make it about football, but the, the Brentford model, where they got rid of their kind of youth squad because they thought we don't have the resources, but we can focus on people that are kind of nearly there and make them play the same as the first team. And I think that strategy is, is kind of better because at the moment we're almost having that kind of um, Darwinian theory of we lose so many, so let's just get more in. So we're left with the amount we kind of want rather than kind of focusing in on the people that are best. But um, Yeah, it's, it's a good point. So boiling that down, we've got to stop treating people as commodities, mm. as numbers. Yeah. Oh, we want our attention rate to be 80% because then we have the fuel for our business. It's like, stop, look, stop referring to people as, as fuel. It's not, it's not the right way to, to kind of, well, obviously it's not the right, right way to look at things, right? People are human and they have different um, value attributes that, that if companies took a bit of time to understand, I think they could actually put them into a much more of a, a much better situation with more kind of longevity. The other thing that I think that goes along with what you just said, where you have people who are anointed walking around the, the insurance market, the, these people are the exception, not the rule. Exactly. And, and making it the rule would be very hard. But mm. is there somewhere in between the exception and the rule of this that we can get to where meritocracy is the defining characteristic for progress? Mm. I, I would hope it is. And as we said, other industries get this right and we should look to them to learn something. Yeah. Are there lessons we can take from these other places and, and, and bring into it? The other interesting thing I thought I read about the other day was this idea of bozofication. Have you heard no. about this no. term? Right. So bozofication is basically where you, you divide people up into three basic camps of aptitude. You've got your kind of A team players who are really good. You've got your B team players who are kind of good. And you've got your C team players who really need to exit the business. Now, the point of bozofication is that a um, B team player or a C team player will never knowingly hire above their level. And so what you get because of insecurity and everything else is a kind of compounding of bad people mm. where people that are insecure and not willing to escalate others, not willing to improve the lives of others. You essentially always, you're always hiring underneath yourself to make yourself feel better right, about your position. Mm -hmm. And so over time, the talent of a company gets more and more concentrated into this kind of bozofication layer. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you're into a really difficult um, uh, place where your decision makers um, are completely unable to root out where the bad apples are because the whole thing is rotten. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's a really interesting kind of dynamic around you know, your really enlightened leaders are ones that can spot where others can do stuff they can't and can acknowledge they're better and just say, I'm hiring you because you're smarter than me, right? Like you, you get this stuff and I don't. But how often do we really hear that like in a genuine sense? Mm. So often I hear about people who are managers rather than leaders, right? Get this distinction, right? Managers rather than leaders. Mm. And they have to be the expert in the room at everything. So mm. all of the knowledge in the room has to feed up into them like a pyramid. And they are therefore the mouthpiece for that knowledge and everything else. Mm. It's just human nature, but it's so ugly. And so I think there's something really interesting in there around that dynamic of talent, around that idea of bozification. Mm. Because I, th I, think that, I think that goes full circle though as well, because I do think there's an expectation slightly from teams where the the there's a there's a misunderstanding of what good managers and, and, and management is a role so like I, I know you should be a leader rather than a manager but a manager is a role in a large organization is an important function um but it should be to kind of drive productivity or improve kind of like basically make the whole better you know it's like it's like, it's like a football team could operate without a manager, but the idea of the, with the manager is that the manager actually makes the team better, you know, coaching and all sorts of stuff that's involved in that. But there's a little bit of a mi misunderstanding with managers where some people go, 
you know, we, particularly in my industry, but it's okay, well, the manager's not as good as me at doing this thing. So it goes both ways. It's like brave enough managers to go, we're hiring you because you're better than me at this thing. But also the people coming in, acknowledging that they've been hired because they're better at that thing. So you then can't hold it against your kind of manager or leader and going, I'm better at this thing than them. It's like, yeah, that's why you're here. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it, and, and, it, and there is, there's a cultural shift kind of across the piece, but it goes back to your point about respecting people as people. You know, yeah. people are, have strengths and weaknesses and, and you know, the, the more that we kind of respect that it's much more complicated than we want it to be. And obviously we have to fit it into kind of social norms. We, we, we can't have, you know, individual rules on a complete scale for, for everyone, but we can kind of build a lot of flexibility, a huge yes. flexibility better than we do. Um, I think but, so. Yeah, um, I want to um, I want to refocus because I wanted to talk to you about kind of a, a little bit more about innovation, um, and and I've got onto my favourite topic of talent, so I'm going to just sort of go off endlessly. And thank you for into, you know <laughs> indulging me. No, I love um, that topic. It's good. Yeah, it is a very good one, and it's very important to kind of innovation. Because um, uh, actually, one final thing to say, I wanted to get your view on this, is really that you know when you're building new teams or new areas or areas that are not insurance specific you know not underwriting not actuarial you know not unique to the industry i'm blown away by how often i see in my world a demand for insurance experience um and and i think if every business when they're creating a new role or writing out a job spec or kind of looking to hire just when they write that line of insurance experience required just stop to go why we'd be in a much better place in five years than we are now yeah exactly i mean look i think what it comes down to is being very problem oriented so if we look at the protection gap we need to offer new products for these new issues new industries whatever it might be we need to be really disciplined around being problem oriented so what is the pain point that companies are feeling mm. and it's only until you really understand that and rationalize that that you can start to bring together your dream team to tackle it. So actually, you know, the ability to empathize, to analyze, to assess information and to digest complexity is so much more important at the front end than insurance experience. Mm -hmm. Because to put it into context, right now, we're doing a lot of work with insurtechs that have a really good understanding of the tech and the problem. You know, and the more passionate about the problem and solving that, the better, because we can do the insurance piece like that's we already have that innately right so it's a it's this recognition i guess of of where the value is in trying to do really new stuff mm -hmm. you don't have to be the world's biggest insurance expert to tackle a new problem mm -hmm. um and, and that's just the the reality of it and equally it works the other way around you don't have to be the world's biggest expert on the problem in order to tackle it as an as an insurance issue so it takes some recognition of where those skills and that knowledge sits. And then th coming back to this idea of building coalitions, but I think you're exactly right. It would be myopic to label that within a requirement for a role, because that's not what it's about. It, mm -hmm. It's about everyone being problem oriented and understanding what they, what their role is in pursuing that problem and solving that problem and for whom you are solving it for. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you look at it on that basis, it really blows it wide open, right? You can take in a variety of different people with different skills as long as they're able to pursue that aim. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what difference does it make if someone's been in the market for 20 years, if they've had 20 years of doing one thing? 
yeah 21 year units of doing the same job yeah yeah that yeah. might be great that might give you exactly the skills you need but it doesn't necessarily do that for you arbitrarily mm. right so mm -hmm. yeah i think you've got to you've got to be quite interesting i mean one of the things that i look for in innovators so it might be counterparties it might be people that i want to work with because of their you know attractiveness to work with them is is curiosity mm -hmm. So typically really good innovators, people who are good at breaking stuff and doing it constructively and being constructively cynical are curious. So they're watching Netflix shows that are really random and esoteric. They're reading books, they're talking to people because the best innovators are people who can talk to anybody and find common ground really quickly. Mm -hmm. so, so that empathetic aspect I think is really important when it comes to the kind of plants, the ideators for innovation where you're bringing everything together. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, I think that's one of my one of my skills. I'm, I'm innately curious, and so when it comes to me bringing together coalitions to solve interesting problems, um, I think I'm able to form those, you know, quite quite quickly. And I see that in in others, and I think it works it works pretty well as a result. Mm. That's the thing that I surprised me so much when I started working in the VC community. Um, I was surprised how collaborative it was. And um, I think I've managed to kind of <laughs> scare myself into this kind of you know you get sidetracked by the money and the investment and it falls into the kind of um you know the negative view of kind of investment banking and that, and that sort of world and, and it's and it's it's not that I've, I've met the most like welcoming collaborative people um who are just kind of keen to get stuff done and help people get things moving and off the ground and, and that seems to be the sort of trait that drives success um yeah. And, and yeah just innately curious and interested and you know, always kind of looking to kind of collaborate on things. It's, it, it's an interesting trait. And, and I wanted to ask you about that. Um, you know, where do you get involved in, in, a, in, a, in an idea when it gets brought to you? Do you self-generate? Um, yeah. And then, and then how do you incubate? You know, how do you sort of grow this, this, this nugget of an idea into something? I, I presume there's kind of a, a multitude of ways that that happens, but yeah, but yeah. I understand to see where you guys get involved in your team. Yeah, sure. So tackling one thing straight up, um, there's a lot of terminology that flies around when it comes to these types of jobs like agile working practices, lean methodology, Kanbans, all this kind of stuff. So trying not to regurgitate like MBA textbooks and the, you know, the Ford system of manufacturing and Toyos for all this stuff is really important because basically- no, I'll have palpitations about my degree, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like flashbacks, right? So fundamentally you're dealing with small teams that are doing this stuff and so the reality is that it is waterfall rather than agile okay so so just just moving past that as, as you know waterfall is not always evil as long as you're well organized now when it comes to you know when ideas come to us um we're doing a lot more work with short techs than i think we thought we were going to do we thought we were going to be dealing with ideas in their purest sense and how we manufacture products around that and launch them into the market now we are doing that work mm -hmm. but a lot of the time insure tech is coming to us and saying we've got a really good idea of this problem and how to solve it with tech but we really don't know about the insurance piece so how do we do a rating model how do we do a wording that makes sense how do we do all the administrative structures around how we actually start underwriting and we can very easily slot into place and and, and do that uh, again, along the theme of, you know, let's not try and be all things because we don't have to be, right? We're building coalitions. So in that case, a very sophisticated understanding of the problem is coming to us. And so something is semi-baked and, and we can slot in and, and accelerate that and make sure it gets to market. The other side of it is, is, is those pure ideas where we have a sense of a, a pain point that is not being met by the market. And we try and look at those thematically. So in 2021, we're looking at intangible assets and climate change in that context. We want to hear about problems in that space that we can 
digest and rationalize into discernible product because you're not going to get a climate change product, right? That would be ridiculous. It'd be like saying, here's a product for recession. It wouldn't work. It's too much stuff going on. So you have to break it down into what, what is that about for companies? Like what aspects of this are causing pain? Is it operational? Is it financial? Is it some other aspect? And then form products around that. Now, how we run these products or these ideas through the process depends on whether it's partially baked because it's coming from an insure tech or whether we are the ideator and it's just the kernel of an idea and we're developing it. But broadly speaking, it's kind of three different stages. So stage one, understanding the problem. So researching it, talking to people, investigating the pain point and prioritization. So is the pain point enough for a company to want to buy insurance to, to moderate that pain? Yeah. critical failure point for a lot of new insurance products is it works it's rational it sounds really good but no one wants to buy it because yeah. the financial pain point is not significant enough to to do that so that we spend a lot of time on that addressable market what is the nature of the pain is it sufficient to create a purchase motivation mm -hmm. for a new product mm -hmm. uh, before you even get into what you're going to charge for it second phase is kind of design building, measuring, and, and learning, right? So how should we rate this thing? What should the wording look like? What cover are we offering? Um, can we bring in services to, to modify this value proposition and make it not just another reactive insurance product, but a tool for managing risk? That's the ideal. How should the marketing work? What are our key messages? Um, and then we get into kind of live pilots and scaling. So frame the objectives. What are we doing here? What, what does success look like for a pilot period? Is it income? Is it time? Is it numbers of policies? And then when we get through that successfully, we're talking about transitioning it to a team that can take it forward. So our objective as a team is to give other teams within Beasley fully baked trading products that have a portfolio in place already. So there is absolutely no hit to their operational ability just to transition into kind of business as usual. Mm -hmm. So we take on all of that work for them and give them something that's going to make them look good at, at the end of it. So look, broadly speaking, that's basically our incubation process. There are kind of 10 steps to it, but cool. that's what it looks like across those three kind of areas. And I think that last point, there was a thing that makes you guys different, which I, I thought was fairly revolutionary from my understanding. And, and there'll be a load of people working in similar roles that will tell me, no, that's how we do it. Um, but you take the financial risk on your team. You know, it goes on your, effectively on your balance sheet, as it were. You know, it's not going to hit anyone else's underwriting profits. Um, I just think that's just, I, it's very simple to say, but it's not how I see these things working because, and then you presumably there's, there's nothing but support coming from those teams because they want you to succeed. They want you to win. They're happy to kind of contribute their kind of, you know, brain power, knowledge in the sector. Whereas if you say to someone, oh, we're going to trial this thing, oh, it goes on your P&L. Um, so yeah. if it goes south, no one's going to support anything. You'll never get anything off the ground. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> think about the, Think about the disincentives to breakthrough innovation. It's basically those things, right? It's, um, I don't have the time. I don't have the money. Yeah. I don't want to give you my capacity. And I'm really worried you're going to blow my book up. Yeah. So by taking those bits off the table, and it's easier said than done, right? So we're lucky with Beasley because we have a very, very unique cultural environment where we have a lot of support to do that. But essentially, it is those components, right? So we resource the ideation and the underwriting of the product we separate that product from the PL to the teams that may one day inherit this. So they inherit the product when they're comfortable. If they're not comfortable, then we run it off and it never, it never hits their PL. Sure. Doing that is really, really hard. And a lot of listeners to this will be going, wow, that sounds great, but how do I rationalize that with accounting and with how we, you know, 
these are really difficult questions to get right. So one of the things that that goes into doing this successfully is spending the time laying the foundations, getting all the plumbing done so that there's no this debate or dispute as to how it all works. Um, otherwise, you're doing everything kind of retrospectively, and that doesn't that doesn't work at all. But yeah, we tried to eliminate those disincentives to breakthrough innovation. And you're right, generally, the teams are really excited to hear from us, which is such a nice change compared to what I say that other innovation teams face, because hearing from us means we might have something for them that's going to make them look good and will contribute to their compensation and, and their book, you know, down the line. Um, so, and so I think it's a win-win, really. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I'm conscious of your time, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'll make this the last question, but it's probably going to be a big one, considering how your, uh, uh, your curiosity lies. I was going to ask you just, you know, of the things you're seeing at the moment, I know that you kind of look at things them- thematically, um, but what's kind of getting you excited at the moment? What are you interested in innovation-wise that you're seeing that you think either themes-wise or technology-wise or kind of, you know, awesome, or as diverse as you want to take it that, that's kind of got your interest at the moment in time? Yeah, so so look, 2021 objectives were chosen as kind of being intangible assets in climate change mm-hmm. because there's such dynamic areas. There's so much pain in those areas right now for companies and it's kind of growing, right? Intangible assets is actually a store of value, right? We discussed how much of a company is proportionally intangible assets. So right now that's a mixture of pain and opportunity. Climate change is much more directly pain. You know, companies are struggling to understand what to do about it. And a lot of the time right now, it's really political as opposed to around risk transfer. But there are certain industries and certain companies that are really struggling right now with the manifestation of climate change in that events are not one in 100 years anymore. They're one in 50 or one in 20 or even one in 10, mm-hmm. right? So the dynamic we've had for hundreds of years around the feasibility of different things occurring has changed. And so rating models have to update and there are opportunities within that updating process for discernible bespoke breakthrough products that do new things. So within that, I'm really excited by um, things like using satellite data to infer a payment point for different kind of issues. So it could be kind of destruction of crops due to flood, for example. I think that's really exciting and really driving that kind of work towards um, parametric products. So trying to do things in a less, uh, in in an environment that requires less trust. So I know that insurers often stand behind trust as, you know, we're going to pay your claim, but paying your claim is the product of a very convoluted process Mm. where invariably policyholders actually have quite low trust that the insurer is going to do what they want to do. So there are a few ways around this. You can either um, expose yourself to disappointing them, or you can create contracts that don't require trust because they're binary in in whether they pay or whether they don't. Mm. So what you need is really nice data, like environmental data, like rainfall, and you need a very simple trigger point that is you pay out a certain amount of money if that thing goes wrong. So we're really moving away from the indemnity principle on that type of business. I think that's really cool. I think buyers really understand that and they like it because moving towards more trustless interactions, I think is probably pretty sensible. Mm-hmm. The other side within intangible assets is a, that really excites me is around crypto assets. So the insurance industry generally has had a pretty slow um, realization that this space is kind of here to stay and it's getting very legitimate very quickly. You've got the IPO of Coinbase in the US, for example, you've got regulation increasing across the board. You've got a lot of value being created in this space right now. Now, the market's approach to date has been very piecemeal. No, we won't offer cyber for these companies because you know we feel like it might be linked to criminality, all this kind of stuff. The market has got to rationalize that perspective into what is insurable and what is not. 
the answer cannot be we don't really get it so we can't be bothered so we're not going to ensure any of it right we've got to, we've got to kind of get this right because new industries that come along deserve to have proper evaluation as to what can be done and, and, and what can't be done so that's really exciting to me um i think you know within that when we look at things like blockchain technology and we look at things like um decentralized finance so again you know can we build insurance contracts on ethereum for example where we actually knock out any kind of required intermediation mm -hmm. so we can actually have two counterparties just trading directly with each other mm -hmm. using this protocol to host the contract i think that's really exciting mm -hmm. and it's not to say that we want to completely upend the value chain because there's a lot of value in intermediation a lot of the time, particularly with complex stuff. But when you've got basic transactions going on, basic insurance um, ideals, then doing this simply and, and without um, as much cost in the middle is, is eminently sensible. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think really it's, it's, it's that for me. It's climate change, you know, and looking at parametric products in that context. And on the intangible side, it's, you know, crypto assets and these emerging asset classes that are just a bit more difficult to kind of get to grips with, but that present massive opportunity for us as an industry. Awesome. George, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Um, that was fascinating. And, and I got to talk about talent, which is obviously my favorite thing to, you know, bang the drum about. And um, great to have a shared experience. So thank you so much for being a guest. I really Pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks a lot. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.